Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ian doubtless are many people who think I did seek to bribe him. But I'm not on trial for that. Now, I'll prove it to you. I'm on trial because I've been a lover of the poor, a friend of the oppressed, because I've stood by labor for all these years and have brought down upon my head the wrath of the criminal interests of this country. Whether guilty or innocent of the crime charged in the indictment, that's the reason I'm here. And that's the reason I've been pursued by as cruel a gang as ever followed a man. I've lived a long time on Earth. And I have friends. I've stood for the weak, the poor. I've stood for the men who toil. I have friends who've come to me here in my sore distress. I have friends throughout the length and breadth of the land. And these men are the poor and the weak and the helpless to whose cause I've given voice. If you should convict me, there'll be people to applaud the act. But if in your judgment and your wisdom and your humanity, you believe me innocent and return a verdict of not guilty in this case, I know that from thousands and tens of thousands, yea, from millions of the weak and the poor and the helpless throughout the world will come fervent thanks to this jury for saving my liberty and my name. The jury, in this case of Clarence Darrow arguing in his own defense against a bribery charge, the jury was out for 34 minutes. Their verdict, not guilty. Books have been written about Darrow, notably Irving Stone's fine biography and a not-so-fine autobiography that Darrow wrote in his later years. Darrow's defense of Loeb and Leopold made up an important and verbatim part of Meyer Levin's bestseller, Compulsion. And, of course, the Scopes trial brought the pure Darrow wit and courtroom poise to the stage in Inherit the Wind. There is something of a Darrow boom on these days, quite apart from the Chicago celebration of the 100th anniversary of his birth. Part of it might be that we now are living in the age of the organization man, in the age of the peer groups and psychological motivations. 
Darrow, in his wild, image-smashing, sentimental, and humanitarian way, would be out of step today. And perhaps we are not only interested in the Darrow character, but a little bit wistful as well. There is a great nostalgia in the memory of Darrow, a nostalgia for the America of yesterday, of all the torments and the trials of a century in its teens and its twenties, in its adolescence. And Clarence Darrow brought dignity to that era. Today in Chicago at the celebration, they filled a round table with old friends of Darrow's and called it a seminar. Lowell Mason, a Washington attorney and an old friend. Clarence Darrow once told me, he said, Lowell, you are the happiest individual I have ever met. He says, you know, there's two kinds of people in this world, the happy and the well-informed. <laughs> Well, when I was a young state senator and I was going to clean everything up, uh, there was a great turmoil in the papers. There were a lot of morons loose in the town doing a lot of things they shouldn't do. And so I proposed that introduced a bill that we should have a farm to put all the morons on. And we had, I had a committee meeting, and I had Clarence Darrow come and testify before it. And he said, Lowell, he says, if you put all the morons in Illinois on the farm, he says, you're going to injure merchandising, tie up manufacturing, and completely close the legislative home. <laughs> you have been listening to a special program about Clarence Darrow, the great American lawyer. It has come from Chicago, where the Darrow centenary is being held. I am John Chancellor of NBC News, Chicago. Listen to news every hour on the hour over most of these NBC radio stations. That was Darrow, all right. Plain of speech, sometimes painfully plain. And that commonness, if so you can label it, was his stock in trade as a lawyer. Another attorney, another Chicagoan, appraises his courtroom technique. Here is James Daniels. I, I remember distinctly. It was during what we called in those days, I think, the communist trial. I think Bross Lloyd was one of the defendants. And they had assigned a special prosecutor, a man named Comerford, who subsequently became a judge. He was a white-haired boy of the Democratic Party. And, well, he was meticulous in his dress and speech to the point that some people might even call him foppish. And if there was ever a contrast between two men, especially in the same arena, it was between Comerford and this big, ungainly Clarence Darrow with his coat off and uh, his suspenders over his shoulder and his shirt rumpled and nothing about him at all to indicate that he cared in the least how he looked. And uh, Comerford... Uh, even his speech was entirely different than that of of, of uh, Darrell. Comerford was given to the polysyllable. He was a very flourishing speaker, uh, gesticulated at great length. And I remember examining the jury, and this thing stands out in my mind because I've examined many juries since then myself. Uh, they were just common run, a crosscut of, uh, of Chicago populace. And Comerford was qualifying them. Uh, he was particularly interested in whether or not they'd been uh, 
influenced by anything that they'd uh, seen in the papers. And he, he, I don't remember his language, but in substance it amounted something like this. He asked one fellow whose name was, we'll say Joe. Uh, he said to him, he said, uh, did you ever have occasion uh, to, uh, prior to this litigation, to... Uh, uh, come across any periodicals or propaganda dealing with this particular issue. And uh, the juror, simple man, looked at him a little bit in amazement and finally Comerford dropped him. And, and uh, Darrow took over the examination. The first question they asked him was such a vivid contrast. He said, Joe, he said, did you read anything in the paper about this thing? He said, did you ever talk to anybody about it? And uh, Joe said, yes. And he says, is it going to make it tougher for me, he says, to try this case because you read something? And Joe said, no. Well, it was an extreme in uh, an address. Darrow was, and I don't know if any of his biographers ever paid particular note to this, possibly have. But he was a almost a worshiper of the Saxon in English. He spoke an English that anybody could understand, and yet it was a good English. Uh, I might say he, he had the, es, the Esperanto of English. Uh, it was a universal language. Clarence Darrow made considerable use of that Saxon English as a lecturer, a debater. He was unexcelled. He was a free thinker, a dissenter, a liberal, and he never ran from an interesting subject... His love for talk was almost an all-consuming passion. Roger Baldwin recalls Darrow, the lecturer. I heard him in one debate, and a debate which he very frequently used, entitled, Is Life Worth Living? Mr. Darrow took the position that life was not worth living. And of course, every clergyman he debated took the position that it was worth living. Mr. Darrow's general line was that you couldn't uh, figure out any purpose in life, that it was all pretty futile, and that uh, we each of us lived only because of the satisfactions and pleasures that we managed to get out of our enthusiasms and our interests. And he had a little story he used to illustrate it with, in which he said that he had learned by his own long experience that you could only live happily if you doped yourself, as he said. Doped yourself with some enthusiasm, some interest, which uh, transcended the business of daily living. He said he'd tried all the different kinds of dope himself and they hadn't worked. He'd tried religion and socialism and women. And he said none of them really got him anywhere. But then he found one that did. Hard work. He said what the, thing, the right thing to do was to get a hold of something and work so hard at it that you forgot you were living. And then you were just as well off as if you were dead. Well, this uh, witty and cynical line, of course, got audiences, and it also got his opponents confused. It was a hard line to beat. He enjoyed this. He enjoyed it so much that it really contradicted his own uh, notion that life wasn't worth living. Biography and sound will continue after a ten-second pause for station identification. We continue with Nightline's biography and sound. Clarence Darrow, attorney for the defense, again... W.W. Chaplin. Darrow's quick mind, his ability to debate simply the most complicated of subjects, is remembered well by another debater of note, by another dissenter of note. Here is Norman Thomas. 
His brilliance was devoted to showing why a man was not guilty, why a conventionally accepted belief was not true. An episode in my own experience illustrates that point. Charles Evans Hughes, then Secretary of State, had approved a protocol by which the United States would join the world court. The issue was controversial, and I found myself...